0: everybody, it's Steve Matthews. Thanks for joining me today for Radio Look Solicit episode 43. The title of today's episode is Conservatism and Autopsy. And I'd like to welcome also uh, everyone who's watching uh, via live stream. I'm streaming right now live to Facebook and to Twitter and to YouTube. So uh, welcome to, uh, to those of you who are, are watching this live. Well, you know, I'd be tempted to to say, I hope everybody had a good week this week, but you know, I don't know. Somehow, that just doesn't seem very adequate or, or very appropriate given the events that have have gone on this past week. And of course, I'm I'm referring to to two things in particular: the uh, uh, the elections that were held on um, Tuesday, the uh, um, January the sixth or fifth, rather, and you know the fact that you had a couple of uh, pretty hardcore liberal Democrats uh, who were elected in in Georgia, and then you had the the disastrous Trump rally the the very next day on the sixth in in Washington D.C., and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, about that, and, and I want to focus in particular on on the the events on on Wednesday because I when I saw that when I saw what was going on there, I just uh, my heart sank. It it really did. I mean, I looked at it, and and it was pretty evident that that was just about the worst possible thing that, that could have happened. And uh, I guess a few things. Maybe what I would want to start off with is, is just by saying, you know, that that those people who who rushed the uh, the Capitol, uh, they shouldn't have done that, uh, and, and those who did. Do do that. Um, well, you know they're they're going to be punished, and and they will be justly punished. Yeah, you know, and and I don't have uh, any argument with that. That's that's as it should be. But what what troubled me was the most about all of it is is what the the fallout is is going to be as a result of that because it's not going to just be a few perpetrators who who here and there who get punished, but there are going to be some some major consequences. Uh, for uh, for Republicans, for conservatives, for anybody who's a, a Trump re- uh, reporter, uh, for anybody who really, you know, what, what I would call themselves is a, uh, you know, an American patriot. You know, I, I think that there are going to be some very serious repercussions. And, I mean, we were going to have a tough time under a Biden presidency anyway. But with this, it's just, it, it gives them an opportunity to have the moral high ground to To take some steps that I don't think they otherwise would be able to do. Um, now, one thing, and, and there were, and, you know, I've had a chance to do some reading and, and doing some, do some thinking about this the past few days. I haven't, haven't really commented on, on the events of, of, Wednesday. And I kind of wanted to avoid doing that because sometimes you can, it's easy to give a hot take and then you come back a little bit later and you say, oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe I need to correct some things that I said. So I, I wanted to take a, take some time to, to think about it, to read about it, to have some time to ponder it, turn it over in my mind a little bit. Um, one of the interesting takes that I found on, on the, uh, the violence at the, uh, the Wednesday rally. Uh, actually came from uh, from Dr. Ron Paul from the Ron Paul Liberty Report. Now, if you don't watch the the Ron Paul Liberty Report, do so. You you, you have to do this. It's one of the. I mean, if if you if you're someone who loves you know limited government, uh, you know uh, uh, sound money, um, liberty, freedom, these kinds of things you got to be a part of the Ron Paul Liberty Report. It's one of the best programs that you'll find anywhere on the Internet. He broadcasts every day live at noon, uh, noon Eastern time, on YouTube. But he's also uh, puts his, uh, his work out on a number of other uh, venues. I believe they're on, uh, on BitChute for one, and they may be on some others. Um, they're also on Parler. Uh, as well so that's another place where you can get the uh, the Ron Paul Liberty Report feed they're also of course on Twitter but you know the way things are going you wonder how much longer they're going to be on YouTube and and in fact it was interesting during the the discussion this was the program from Thursday and I'm going to put a link to that program in the show notes his co-host Daniel McAdams made the point that they are currently under scrutiny with YouTube so, I mean, it's possible they could be gone at any time. And, and the way things are going right now, um, it wouldn't surprise me because, uh, you know, there were, have been some massive purges of conservatives on, uh, on some of the big... Big uh, social media uh, channels, especially uh, platforms, rather, especially Twitter seems to be very active in this regard. They banned the president. Um, They even banned Rush Limbaugh, uh, I think, who's only been on Twitter for maybe two or three months now. And, of course, if they can ban the president and they can ban Rush Limbaugh, well, they can ban pretty much anybody they want to, including you and me. So anyway, um, I would would really encourage you to uh, sign up for the Ron Paul Liberty Report. I I think it's an outstanding program. And it it was interesting to listen to Ron Paul and and Daniel McAdams discuss uh, the events on Thursdays. And one of the things that they put forward is they floated the idea that some of what went on there uh, may not have been what it appears. You know, one of the points that they made was, you know, there have been maybe dozens, maybe maybe a hundred I don't know how many Trump rallies there have been over you know since twenty fifteen up until the present, but there have been a lot of them. And to my knowledge, to their knowledge, I don't think there's ever been any serious violence ever attributed to Trump supporters. Now there's been violent there have been Trump supporters who've been violently attacked. There's lots of videos from that from 2016, but there isn't video of of Trump supporters carrying out Acts of violence. Now, myself, I've been to uh, to Trump rallies on uh, on three occasions. I saw Donald Trump twice. I saw him once in uh, in October of 2016. Now, that was actually during the presidential election, and I saw him again a couple months later in December of 2016. After he won, he came back into town and he he was doing a, a, a thank you tour ra- uh, rallies in in the, in the number of cities so anyway he came he came in December of 2016 and then I also saw him again in October of 2018 when he came into the area he was doing a rally for um, you know it was for the midterm uh, congressional elections and in all three cases you know you I went to these rallies You didn't find people who were, were a lot of crazies, violent people. They were just normal people. They're just normal American people who were, you know, people who, who worked their jobs and took care of their families. And, you know, they didn't have a third eyeball in the middle of their forehead. Uh, they weren't a bunch of crazies. They, they were just regular Americans who came out to support Donald Trump. Yeah, they were completely peaceful rallies, and this is one of the points that Ron Paul and Daniel McAdams made. And the fact that you had so much violence all of a sudden break out at this, well, you know, you have to ask yourself. You know, some people have been saying, well, you know that that there was, you know, there were some agent provocateurs, you know, that there were people there who were uh, had infiltrated the rally with the idea of carrying out violence. Now, I don't have any proof that that took place, other than to try to kind of think through. Um, some of the events that happened. And again, you, you're looking at a, at a case that, as far as I'm aware, there's no other Trump rally where you've seen violence um, out of the Trump supporters. Now, you could explain that in other ways. But there, there were additional things, too, that they brought up. And I would encourage you to watch the video. I, th- I think it's pretty interesting. And by the way, by saying that there were uh, poss- the possibility that there were infiltrators... Uh, among the uh, the the pro Trump crowd that that instigated some of this, that doesn't let people off the hook uh, for doing the things that they did. I mean, if somebody went into the Capitol, if somebody uh, smashed up stuff, if somebody carried out. Um, you know, acts of vandalism or violence or this type of thing. Well, I mean, those people deserve to be punished. You know, whether they, you know, regardless of, of what the reasons were that they were carrying that out, I, I don't support that kind of thing. And the other thing is, I, I don't think that, that most people who are Trump supporters would countenance that type of thing. Um, but I mean, the one of the th- one of the things that really bothered me about that entire uh, episode though was that in looking at, yeah, you know, I just knew for as soon as I saw that, that there were going to be serious repercussions, uh, not only for Donald Trump, but also for those people, uh, who were his supporters. Um, Oh, and by the way, before I move on here, I wanted to mention there's a, another article that I found that discussed the possibility of, of infiltration in the, the Trump rally. It's written by a, a fellow named uh, Stephen Lenman. Now, he's an old school uh, leftist. I mean, he's not a conservative. He's not a Republican. Um, but, it, but he actually talks in here about um, some things that he believes that indicates that, that the, the rally may have been infiltrated. And the fact that he is a liberal. Um, that actually makes his case a bit stronger. I'm going to put that link in the show notes as well. I think you might find that interesting. Um, so what were the fallout of, of some of the things? You know, I, I mentioned I was was very concerned about what went on on Wednesday on the on the sixth with all the the uh, happenings at the at the Capitol. Well, it, it it didn't take long for all my fears to to be realized. Uh, Twitter, for instance, for permanently banned Donald Trump. His, his, uh, at real Donald Trump account is gone. Uh, he can't post on that anymore. Uh, and I think they've removed all of his tweets as well. I think I went and I checked that yesterday and, and it it's, it's all shut down. And a number of his supporters have been shut down as well. Very prominent people have been kicked off of Twitter among them. Probably the, the biggest name on that was Rush Limbaugh. I mean, Rush Limbaugh has been an absolute bedrock uh republican advocate conservative um, public personality for over 30 years i started listening to rush limbaugh in the late 80s okay i mean he's been doing this a long time and you know he's you know he's he's, he's kind of considered mainstream i mean he certainly is a veteran i mean he received in uh, fact that the the uh State of the Union address, he was given a, an award by Donald Trump. I can't remember the exact award that he got. But anyway, he, he's a very prominent guy. I mean, he's been around for, for literally for decades. And yet he can't stay on Twitter because I, I guess for he said something that he, he apparently shouldn't have said in the eyes of of the, uh, of the, the technocrats that, uh, that now seem to, to run our country. So you know, you, you've got uh, increased uh, banning on social media. Of course, this has been going on now for, what, over over two years now, and, and even longer than that. It probably goes back four years, but it really started in earnest in, uh, in August of 2008 when they uh, they banned Alex Jones, and it, it's just continued that way uh, along those lines ever since. Now, one thing's for sure is is by banning Donald Trump, that tells you something about where the real power in this nation lies. It doesn't lie with the elected officials. I mean, if if social media companies are able to ban a sitting president of the United States, well, they can ban any other public official as well. And they can certainly ban you and me. I mean, we don't have anything remotely like the kind of power and influence of, um, of a president. So, I mean, it really kind of suggests that um, the, the public officials, the elected officials of the United States of America, aren't really calling the shots. That's a big problem. Um, one of the other things that that came out of the violence on, on Wednesday was uh, calls to remove Trump from office. Now, there have been some people who've called for invoking the 25th Amendment. Now, if you're not familiar with the 25th Amendment, that's basically an amendment that says if a president becomes incapacitated in the judgment of, you know, mentally incapacitated and in the judgment of, you know, the cabinet that, that he can be removed. And now the vice president actually has to be, uh, give his okay to sign off on that whole thing. And Mike Pence has said he's not going to do that. So probably uh, that's probably not going to happen. That's probably not going to happen. You're probably not going to see the 25th amendment invoked on the other hand. Um, there are calls for impeachment. And it, it's actually quite amazing how um, how vociferous the Democrats have been when it comes to, uh, to trying to impeach Donald Trump. And, and here's an article. I'm going to see if I can uh, do a, a screen share here just a moment. Um, let's see. Here we go. Yeah. Now here's an article. This is from a liberal website called Vox, and it's got a headline that says, "Will Trump be impeached or face removal under the Twenty Fifth Amendment?" And they talk here a little bit about, um, you know, politicians are increasingly considering whether to take uh, whether to take against Donald Trump before or take action against Donald Trump before his term in office expires on January twentieth. In the wake of Wednesday's presidential – presidentially incited chaos at the Capitol. Well, I I don't know that that it actually was presidentially incited. I believe Donald Trump – and I didn't see the speech, but I've heard people talk about it. and, And he told them, I believe, that they were to go to the Capitol and that they were going to protest peacefully. And I think he explicitly said that when he was was giving his speech. So, no, I, I don't know that you can say that it was presidentially incited. But this is Vox. And I mean, then they, they you know, Vox, um, as does most of the media, is going to put the worst possible construction in anything that Donald Trump says. But they talk in here about the possibility of the 25th Amendment. And also they talk about the possibility, you know, if that doesn't work, um, that they're going to impeach him or that they, they that's what they they claim they're going to do. Um, and, uh, you know, all this is going on here with just, uh, what's this, uh, I'm recording this. It's, uh, it's about 1130 on January, Saturday, January the 9th. Well, his term ends on, on January the 20th. So we're talking here 11 days from now. <clears throat> um, but they can't seem to wait. You know, he's got to get out of office now. Now, of course, some people, this has raised some questions in some people, okay. In, in some people's minds. Okay. So why are they so desperate to get rid of him? And this is one of the things that Ron Paul and Daniel Adam's discussed uh, on their program from uh, from last Thursday. Yeah, and, and it kind of makes you—you know—they seem like they're afraid of something. And you know, various people have floated ideas about what that might be. You know, they're concerned that maybe Donald Trump might declassify some documents that might show um, maybe some criminal activity on the part of certain people that that don't want that criminal activity exposed. I don't know. I mean, that—that that is. Is a uh, is a possibility, so we'll, we'll have to wait and see. I, I think there's a, a very good chance that the next oh next week and a half could uh, could be very interesting. And maybe uh, you know we'll be discussing some of that uh, this time next week. I don't know. We'll see. Um, another uh, f- bit of fallout from from the the uh, the rally violence on Wednesday. Uh, uh Tucker Carlson made this point in his show and he and he said this he said that that the people coming to power uh, they actually want to hurt their political opponents and they're going to use Tuesday's you know the or excuse me they're going to use the events that took place on Wednesday uh, as as justification for doing that um one of the there was a, a journalist by the name of uh, Rick Klein now Rick Klein is is not not a nobody. Rick Klein is the political director of ABC News. So he's, he's a big shot. You know, he's a big shot uh, mainstream media guy. And he wrote a column. I, I think it was maybe it may have been on Wednesday. It may have been on Thursday. Um, not long, I think, after the uh, the events on, on the at the Capitol. And this is what he wrote, quote, even aside from impeachment and 25th Amendment, uh, and 25th Amendment, Trump will be an ex-president in 13 days. The fact is that getting rid of Trump is the easy part. Cleansing the movement he commands or getting rid of what he represents to so many Americans is going to be something else. Now, now, get a look at that, that language that he used. Cleansing the movement he commands. Now, what does that mean exactly? Um I think he got some heat for that. and in fact, if you that that's the original wording on it. If you go back and you read, there was a, another edition put out, maybe it was a few hours later, I don't know, but it, it softened the language on it a bit. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, Rick Klein wrote what he wrote. that was the that was his original his original wording. He's talking about cleansing the movement. Now, I mean, that sounds like something that you would expect out of uh, out of some leftist dictatorship. You know, we're going to have a political cleansing, yeah, uh, you know, and that has some very, uh, very nasty overtones to it. And this isn't coming from an obscure guy either. This is coming from uh, a very prominent fellow. Now there was another piece. In fact, this is a piece that was—it's um, not by Glenn Greenwald, but it was—it was written about him. And uh, maybe I'll go ahead and and share that uh, that particular piece as well here on screen. Just a moment, let me. Get that done here. Yeah, there's a, a, a piece that appeared, and this was on uh, the website RT. and It's got a headline, Media and Democrats are launching second war on terror against Americans, Glenn Greenwald warns. So what they're going to do is they're going to use the, uh, the events the, that took place on Wednesday to say, oh, well, we need a new war war on terror. But this time it's going to be directed domestically as opposed to abroad. And Read a little bit of this here. It it says, uh, some of the very same people behind the original war on terror are now helping to start a new one against Americans. Journalist Glenn Greenwald warned amid a rising crackdown on free speech following the chaos at the U.S. Capitol. Now, again, Glenn Greenwald is, um, you know, he's not a a conservative partisan. He's he's pretty much straight down the middle. I mean, he's not, uh, I, I wouldn't say he's somebody that, He maybe leans a little bit liberal, I don't know, but he's a good journalist, and and I've read his work over the years, and he's somebody whose analysis um, I trust. And uh, here's a tweet that he put out, this is in the article. He says, there's absolutely a new war on terror being initiated. It'd been lurking for a while, but it's accelerating now for obvious reasons. The new one is aimed inward domestically. It entails many of the same frameworks. They're saying it explicitly. And he quotes, he has a quote here from the Wall Street Journal, and he has a highlight here. He says, Mr. Biden said that he plans to make a priority of passing a law against domestic terrorism. And again, this is all in response to the events um, from Wednesday, January the 6th. And he says, I spent the first decade of my journalism career devoted to exposing and denouncing the excesses of the first war on terror. And I see exactly the same tactics forming. The Democrats behind it won't even need to study the tactics of neoconservatives from the original war on terror as neocons are their full allies in all this, Greenwald noted. Anyone who has questions or concerns about it will be demonized as a terrorist sympathizer. So if you say, hey, you know, um, pushing all of this, this domestic war on terror you know, aren't you maybe, isn't that getting a little scary? Isn't that getting a little bit like uh, like a dictatorship? And, of course, people, you know, the supporters of this um, this new domestic war on terror are just going to say, well, you know, the only reason you're saying that is because you're a terrorist sympathizer. And, and he cites uh, a fellow by the name of David Frum. Now, David Frum is a very prominent, uh, I guess you'd call him a neoconservative, uh, writer, intellectual, um, he's probably best known to the American public back during the original war on terror. He talked about the axes of evil. You might remember that particular turn of phrase from back. I guess it was in two thousand three, in the run up to the war in Iraq, and, and and so he's very well known for for that. He was a speechwriter actually for the Bush administration, um, but now you know he's he's out there criticizing, uh, say, Tucker Carlson for bringing up the risk that is. Uh, the genuine risk that people who are, say, Trump supporters, conservatives, what have you, are facing as a result of the, the activities that took place on on Wednesday. And, and he talks about the, you know, these, uh, these conservatives. In fact, he even brings up uh, Glenn Greenwald's name. He says they, talking about the, the conservatives or others who are, are criticizing the, uh, the Second War on Terror, he says, they lament the real victims of the attempted violent overthrow of a U.S. election uh will be uh, those who sympathized with that attempted violent overthrow so you know here they are there you know he's he's saying that you know that um the people who uh, that is david frum is saying that uh people like tucker carlson and glenn greenwald are lamenting that uh the victims uh of the uh the attempted overthrow would be those who who uh, who sympathized with that overthrow? So you know he you know David Frum thinks it's it's all well and good to go after, and he doesn't quite come out and just say Trump supporters in general, but you you kind of get a sense that that that's who he's he's talking about here. So anyway, that oh and here's uh, another one. There's uh, CNN. Uh, this is a, a tweet here by Tom Allett. He says, now CNN's Oliver Darcy is going after cable companies for carrying Fox News. And apparently they're also going after cable companies for carrying other uh, conservative political outlets. So, I mean, the, the censorship uh, is, uh, is increasing. It's not getting less. It's not getting better. This is something that's becoming uh, consistently worse. You know, the, the First Amendment, the idea of free speech is definitely under attack. Now, let's take a look here. You know the, the the question, of course. You know, and I think one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves, of course, is how did we get here? How on earth did did we, did the United States, get into this position? And in in my view, that the bottom line with with the loss of the presidential election, the loss of the Senate the aggressive discrediting, discrediting of patriotic Americans by the, the mainstream media, by major corporations, by the schools, by the universities, by the entertainment industry, in other words, pretty much by the entire American establishment. Uh, I think perhaps it's time that, that we Protestants started asking ourselves where we went wrong. You know, where did we go wrong? You know, The prospects of our nation are not getting better. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, you back in the day, you know, I remember growing up, and uh, this was maybe in the late seventies, early eighties. You know, there was always this talk about the the evangelical right or the religious right. Well, nobody even talks about that anymore. Um, you know, there were you know, organizations such as you know the Moral Majority, and you know that was with uh, you know, it was led headed up by Jerry Falwell. They, there were others, but that was one particular prominent one. Um, but it doesn't seem that the Protestants have uh, any influence about what goes on in this country at all anymore. Um, and not only things, in, in our countries, it's not getting better. I mean, things are not getting better. You know, the, the moral climate of the country isn't better. The political situation isn't getting better. You know, we're not becoming more free. We're becoming less free. We're not shrinking government. I mean, that used to be something that that conservatives at least used to 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 pretend that they they supported. But government's not shrinking, government's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, just think about what happened here you know within the past year and then say in twenty twenty um there have been a number of financial commentators that pointed out that about twenty five percent of the 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 dollar currency units that have ever been created in the history uh, of the country were created within in 25 percent now that's an extraordinary amount I mean that tells you how fast. Government is growing. How big it's getting. So it's not getting better. You know, we like to tell ourselves, "Oh, you know, we you know we spend all this time, we spend all this money, and 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 you know we're 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 improving the moral climate of the country." Well, it's not improving. I mean, I I can tell tell you this just in my own experience here locally where I live. I mean, I live in the uh, the greater Cincinnati area in Hamilton County. Now, when I was growing up, Hamilton County was a Republican bastion, famously so. I mean, it was, it was known that way. It was one of the, the, uh, the, the Bell, you know, really uh, Republican-leaning counties in the state of Ohio. Ohio is kind of interesting that way because Ohio, um, if you go up north, say, into the, uh, the Cleveland area, um, that's a much more Democrat area. And it historically has been. But if you live in, in this part of the state, in southern Ohio, and in, in Cincinnati is in southwest Ohio, Hamilton County is in extreme southwest Ohio. Uh, Hamilton County is where Cincinnati is located. Um, we're actually right. I mean, if, if you look at a map of Ohio, we're the, the, as far southwest as you can get in Ohio. We border Indiana uh, on the uh, on the west side and Kentucky on the south. And this part of the state is actually historically very Republican. Um, but Hamilton County no longer is. Hamilton County's gone Democrat, and now they're the. The surrounding areas around Cincinnati are still very Republican, but Hamilton County no longer is. And in fact, just to kind of prove to you what I'm talking about, Hamilton County just, um, I don't know what the right word is, installed or swore in or or, or what have you, a new sheriff. And, and, and the sheriff, she, uh, is she's uh, she's a lesbian. Now, it would have been unthinkable, oh goodness, even just a few years ago, to see Hamilton County with a Democrat lesbian sheriff. But that's what we have now and and that's that's what the voter base of Hamilton county has has changed has become. and that I mean that was never the case, never the case when I was growing up. I mean, I think even five or ten years ago that would have been unthinkable. Um, but that's what it is now and, and it doesn't seem to be any any stopping of that, despite all the conservatives and Republicans and the money spent in campaigns and all of this other stuff. Um, there was a a, a tweet. That I saw this past week, I thought was was very telling, and it, it was by a, a fellow named Dave Weigel. He's a political reporter for the the Washington Post. So again, he's a prominent guy. He's one of the blue checkers on Twitter. You know, if you go on Twitter, you know you got these people, these special people with the blue check mark uh, next to their name, and that means they're verified. It means they're kind of a big shot. You know, and they're typically people who are you know, prominent poli- you know, politicians or prominent journalists, things of this sort. And, and Dave Weigel is, is somebody who's a, uh, he's a writer for the Washington Post. And this is what what Dave Weigel said. He said that, and this was on January 6th, he said, Protestants locked out of the top offices for the first time ever. And by top offices, he, he expands on it. He means things, he you know, means president, chief justice, speaker of the house, majority leader. Now, I suppose maybe you could argue, say, "Oh, oh, well, 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 Kamala Harris is 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 a Protestant." Well, you know, <laughs> maybe in some nominal sense, I, I think she's a Baptist, but but she's she's not a Christian, and I think that's very obvious from uh, from the comments she makes and, and from the uh, the policies that she supports. No, she's 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 not a Christian. I mean, she's maybe nominally an evangelical. But but she's she, she's not a Christian, and in someone commented on Dave Weigel's tweet. This a fellow named uh, Jesse Curtis, who uh, bills himself. Apparently, he's a a, a professor of history, a history professor, and he said this. I thought this was an interesting comment too. He said the decline of Protestant supremacy, both as fact and ideology, is really something. Less than a century ago, this would have been front page news and major social tension. Now it's just. Quaint trivia. So, I mean that—that's what's happened. I mean, the the United States was, uh, I think, ninety-eight percent Protestant at its founding, and and it, it was really the 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 Protestant faith, the Calvinism of the uh, the people of the United States, that gave the nation the shape that it has. Um, but that's changed, you know, and we've gotten to a position now where you know Protestants are, are pretty much, or to a very substantial degree locked out of the top uh, leadership jobs uh, in the United States of America. And, and you have to ask yourself, well, what happened? You know, how could that possibly happen? And, and I think to help answer that question, you can go and, and you can actually turn to uh, the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, he, he wrote this about Judah uh, in his day. This is what he wrote, quote, Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land? Strangers devour it in your presence, and it is desolate, is overthrown by strangers. End quote. Now, the people of Judah in Isaiah's day were experiencing the, the covenant curses that God had warned them about when they came into the promised land. You know, you read that back, and I, I think it's in I think it's in Deuteronomy. You know, when they had crossed into the promised land, and and God spelled um, out for them. You know, blessings and curses. I mean, if if you uh, obey my word, if you follow the the covenant that I've laid uh, set forth for you, you're going to have all of these blessings. But if you don't do that, you're going to get all of these curses. And and you know, the, those curses were you know they would become few in number. You know that they would become despised. You know that that strangers would uh, would take over the land. That that they would go into exile. Now, all of those things happen, too. Uh, because of unbelief. Now Isaiah, it was was still about a hundred years or so before the, uh, maybe a little bit more than a hundred years before all of those those curses finally came fully to fruition. But the nation was already seen at that at that time, and the reason that they were experiencing that was unbelief. And I think that that as Protestants, I mean, we can look at that in our own time and say, well, how is it that we find ourselves? basically substantially dispossessed in the country that, that our forefathers founded. Well, it's because of unbelief. Same thing that happened to, uh, to the people of Judah. I mean, I think you're seeing that, that happened to, to us, uh, in our own time. I mean, in, in the, from the time that this country was founded until today, you know, what is it, you know, 200 and, you know, I guess what, almost 240 years now, um, over 240 years. So, you know, in that time, Protestants have turned their back on the Calvinist biblical faith of their forefathers, and and have largely become uh, unbelievers. I mean, it used to be in mainline presby or in mainline uh, Protestant churches, you could hear the gospel, and and I'm speaking here as a Presbyterian. I'm a Presbyterian, so I, I make I can, I can criticize uh, Presbyterians a little bit more easily. Um, the, uh, the Presbyterian Church I belong to, the Bible Presbyterian Church, uh, is an offshoot of the old mainline Presbyterian Church. And the reason the people left was because of uh, the unfaithfulness, the unbelief, the liberalism of the mainline uh, Presbyterian Church. And this goes, dates back to the 1930s and 1920s, and even really before that. The fight started in the late 19th century, uh, liberalism, you know, versus biblical, you know, the liberals versus the uh, the fundamentalists, uh, as they used to to frame that back uh, back in the day, and the the liberals really gained control of the mainline Presbyterian Church in the 1920s, and they really solidified that in the 1930s. Um, one of the things that, that kind of marked the end of of the the fight was when they they booted uh, um, uh, Menken. Not Mankin, uh, Machen. Excuse me, I'm confusing my people who when they beat, when they uh, uh, kicked out uh, John Gresham Machen uh, from the uh, from the Presbyterian Church, and then he went on. He founded the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, from that, and in and, and from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, that's where the the Bible Presbyterian Church came, but you know, these groups, you know, had to leave the mainline Presbyterian church because it had become so corrupt. And, and of course now today, instead of hearing the gospel in the mainline Presbyterian church, what do you get? You you get, you get gay, gay weddings. In fact, I had a, a family member, um, some family members of mine, they, for a long time attendees of a, of a, uh, PCUSA. That's the main, the old mainline, the biggest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. They attended a church there, and that entire congregation left the PCUSA here just within the last few years. The reason for that was over the whole same-sex marriage thing. You know, the PCUSA embraced it. The church said, we don't want to go that way. And to their credit, they left. You know, I'm, I'm glad that they did that. But, you you know, the the PCUSA is still the biggest Presbyterian church in the United States. And when people think about Presbyterians, a lot of times, that's what they think of. You know, and you read this stuff in the paper, and oh, they've got all this really obviously unbiblical stuff going on. And they think, well, all Presbyterians are like that. Well, they're not. I mean, there are still Presbyterians who actually do believe the Bible. Uh, and there are, are, are Presbyterian denominations that, that do teach the gospel of justification by belief alone. There are, are Presbyterian denominations that do uphold the infallible, infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture. They do. There are. There are faithful Presbyterians. But you're not going to read about them probably in the headlines of your, uh, of your newspaper or uh, maybe headlines on, uh, on the Internet now. I guess newspaper almost sounds kind of old-fashioned, doesn't it? Who reads newspapers anymore? <laughs> oh, but, uh, but yeah, Protestants, they, they've abandoned the Bible as their source of knowledge um about matters of of salvation, and not only that but they've also abandoned the Bible and matters of uh, uh about politics and economics uh, as well and what I wanted to do was uh you now I, I titled this episode you know, the uh, Conservatism and Autopsy. now that particular title comes from a uh, an essay uh, that was written by uh, someone who has had a huge influence on in my life. If you've watched my blog or listened to any of my, my podcasts, you've probably heard me talk about John Robbins, uh, the late Dr. John Robbins. And, you know, I think he was a, a truly extraordinary Christian and, and, and a wonderful teacher and, and someone who has had a profound influence uh, on my own thinking. And I, I started reading his work back around the year 2000. Uh, and the essay that I'm going to talk about here today – Conservatism and, uh, and Autopsy, was an essay that he published in, in uh, 2002. And I re- distinctly remember when, when I read that, and, and it had a very powerful impact on me. In fact, it, it was one of the very few things. I remember I sat down in front of my computer to read it, and after I'd read the article and I, I stood up, I was a different man. You know, I I had changed between the time I sat down and the time I stood up. It had that kind of an impact on me. That was a permanent change. I mean, I've never gone back to thinking the same way I did um, before I read his, uh, his essay, Conservatism and Autopsy. It was – it really – Slammed home some truths that I was kind of getting at a little bit on my own, but this essay really put those together for me. And and I wanted to uh, to share a little bit of of what he said here. Now I can't go over everything that he talks about in that essay just in uh, in uh, our discussion here today, but I I think we can at least talk some about it. Let me go ahead and uh, and get that here on the screen. Let's do a little screen share here. All right, so here's uh, the the uh, conservatism and autopsy, and uh, there's a, an editor's note. This this particular essay was originally published. In, in 1978. And then he went back and he republished it uh, in, in, uh, in 2002. And he actually expanded it uh, a bit from the original publication. That's one of the things he talks about in the, uh, in the editor's note. But let me go ahead and just start here from the very first paragraph, and then we can, can kind of break it down a little bit. Uh, this is what John Robbins wrote, quote, It is not the purpose of this essay to provoke an altercation with any conservative or with any Christian who believes that conservatism is good and ought to be defended. This essay is rather a recognition of an already existing state of hostilities between Christianity and conservatism. Hostility is initiate, initiated by the conservatives themselves. It may come as a, surprise, as a surprise to some readers that there is a distinction between Christianity and conservatism, let alone a state of hostilities. And for that reason alone, this essay is necessary. Now, I remember when I first read those those words, I just, wow. I, I've I've never seen anything like this. Now, one of the things that um that I, I learned from from reading this essay, or maybe I should say this, just to kind of give you a little sense of my my uh thought process leading up to this essay. I had really from the from my youth up, I'd always been someone who favored limited government. Um free market economics and capitalism, those kinds of things. I I didn't have a great philosophical grounding in them, but it it always seemed to me that I've always been someone who favored freedom, favored liberty. And I remember I I first kind of got – a little bit more sophisticated in my thinking about that. When I started reading Walter Williams, this was back in the early to mid eighties. He's an economist, uh, actually just recently passed away. Uh, And I I did a a podcast on him about a month, month and a half back or so. Um, Someone that really is an intellectual hero of of mine and, and has been uh, for many years and and will continue to be. But I I first started reading him and he was a, he was a libertarian and, and I love the way that he argued. He argued very systematically and very persuasively for uh, for limited government and and for uh, um, you know uh, sound money, you know, these types of things for liberty, for capitalism, for political freedom, and I actually became a I literally became a card carrying member of the uh, the uh, uh, Libertarian Party for a while, and after a while though I started to get a little bit uh, uncomfortable with libertarianism. Um, because I, I look at it, and, and some of the conclusions that libertarians came to troubled me. Now, I wasn't a Christian at that time, but you know, they, the libertarians, as you may be aware, they have this thing, most of them, the centerpiece of their philosophy, something they call the non-aggression principle. And the non-aggression principle, I, I don't have it here in front of me, but, but it states basically that the, that you're not allowed to initiate violence against someone. And and this is really the, f- the fundamental principle of their philosophy is this non-aggression principle. Well, I mean, it leads to all sorts of things that, that I wasn't very comfortable with. I mean, it would, you know, lead to things like, say, permitting abortion, for example. I mean, there, there are, are, uh, are libertarian thinkers, major libertarian thinkers like Murray Rothbard, for example, um, who believe that that you can justify abortion based upon that, uh, you can justify all kinds of you know things like say same-sex marriage and open homosexuality as a result of that. Um, you can do that, and 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 that's all justifiable under libertarianism. And I I just wasn't super comfortable with this. I said I wasn't a Christian, but those things troubled me, and. And so I started to look for something else, and and I came across some of the writings of uh, of Bill Buckley, and and in particular the uh, the National Review, and I started reading that. And this is maybe this was a long time ago. I mean, this is maybe in the 1990s, and and I became a, uh, I became a conservative, or I was certainly very much influenced by conservative thinking. But over time, I started to get a bit uncomfortable with that and uh, I'll talk a little bit more about about that in time but but when by the time this by the time I read this essay in two thousand and two, I was at a point where I was just like you know there's some things about conservatism that that leave me troubled and this essay when I read it, conservatism and autopsy, it kind of just kind of gave one final last big shove to uh <laughs> to my uh my conservatism and kind of pushed it over the edge permanently. And and I don't. I mean, sometimes I'll call myself a conservative. I think a lot of people would would, would say I'm a conservative, but I I really don't think of myself that way. Um, I don't claim to be a conservative. And and some of the reasons for that I think will become evident as we talk a little bit about this essay. So you know, we had this first this first paragraph here where you know John Robbins talks about oh you know he he makes the point you know that there's a the conservatism and Christianity are not the same thing and if there's a state of hostility that exists between them and that that state of hostility was initiated by the conservatives themselves. And he goes on to talk in his essay. Let's go ahead and get that back up on the screen here. There we go. Okay, yeah, there we go. All right, so we got that essay back up on the screen, and he, he talks the first sort of subsection here. He talks about conservatism as non-Christianity. And he says the trouble with conservatives is the same as the trouble with liberalism. It is not Christian. If one were to scrutinize the index of George H. Nash's classic, *The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America*, he would be hard pressed to find even one, one Christian listed there. It is safe to say that none of the safe to say that of the twenty-four contributors to the to an anthology of conservative thought edited by William F. Buckley Jr. Not one, including Buckley himself, as a Christian. Now, this is one of the things that kind of began to bother me about conservatism, or cons- conservatism yeah uh, and that is there weren't any Christians involved I mean, you would read through it and you would find you know you know Roman Catholics you would find uh Jewish authors, you would find atheists for example um but there weren't any Protestants they weren't there they, they just didn't exist. And I kept asking myself, well where are the protestants where Where are these guys? Well they didn't exist and and it was interesting you know to finally come along and to read what John Robin said, and he says yeah they're not i mean these people are there are are not uh, they're not Protestants. They're not Christians. You know They don't believe. In, you know, and, and when I say Christian, you know, when John Robbins talks about this, he means that in one of two senses. He means either, number one, someone who is is a genuine believer, that is, one who is justified by faith alone, uh, through grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Someone of that sort, I mean, that's, that's that's the biblical gospel justified by faith in Christ alone, and that faith is a gift of God's grace. Uh, or someone who is maybe not a Christian, but inconsistently accepts uh, the political and the economic ideas taught by Christianity. Now, Christianity has a distinct um, view on politics and economics. Uh, John Robbins, in another one of his books, in Ecclesiastical Megalomania, he talks about this. He called it constitutional capitalism. You know, that is that the political view of the Bible is a constitutional republic. And the economic system of the Bible is capitalism, the system of free enterprise. And he called that complex, the two, constitutional capitalism. That's the, uh, the view of, of the politics and economics of the Bible. And of course, that's what we had at the foundation of the United States of America. We had a constitutional capitalist system. Uh, and there are people who are not Christians who actually do inconsistently accept that. And unfortunately, there are also Christians, Uh, and I think even people who are, I'm saying people who are are genuine believers, uh, who are really ignorant of what the Bible teaches on those subjects, and as a result, I think sometimes get pulled in in one direction or another, kind of away from that, because they've never ever had anyone teach them um, about what the Bible says about politics and economics. But one of the things I, I I was coming to, and and this was at a time when I I became a Christian in 1996 at the age of 30. So the, I, I was reading Buck there. I was reading the the conservatives right about the same time I was that I became a Christian, and and then after I became a Christian, I became even more and more concerned about some of the things that that I was reading, and and the fact that there weren't any Protestants. It didn't seem like. Who were major conservative theorists that troubled me? You know, why is that? I said to myself. Well, we find, you know, in in uh, John Robbins' essay that it's because uh, philosophically speaking, political conservatism is uh, not only is not Christianity, but it's actually hostile to it. And the next sort of subsection in his his essay here is called "Conservatism is Anti Christianity." He says, conservatism as a political movement displays as much variety of thought as liberalism. Yet both liberalism and conservatism are united in their anti-Christianity. Both are tolerant, but neither will tolerate Christianity. It is a mistake to think that conservatism and conservatism, as opposed to liberals and liberalism, are neutral on the issue of Christianity. There is and can be no neutrality. The conservatives seem to recognize this, but unfortunately, Christians do not. Many Christians still believe that politics is an endeavor that can be pursued shoulder to shoulder with conservatives. They believe that there's common ground upon which both Christians and conservatives stand, uh, can stand and build or rebuild a free society. So this is, you know, this is a serious problem. You know, I, I asked before, you know, a little while back, you know, so how did we get here? How did we get to this situation where, uh, basically you've got the the Democrats, the liberals, the progressives, the social justice warriors, the wokesters, all these people. How is it that they're running the entire country now? They say they're, they're in power, not just in in government. They have the White House. They have the House of Representatives. They have the Senate. But it's not just that. I mean, they have all the major corporations. They have the schools. They have the universities. They have uh, all of the media outlets, you know, the newspapers, the TV stations, um, they have, you know, all of the big tech companies out there in, in Silicon Valley. They're all woke. You've got the entertainment industry that's dominated um, by the by the wokesters. You know, in, in Christians, it's almost like they don't even exist. Yeah, you know, how did we get to this point? Well, in one in one way, I mean, of course, large numbers of, of formerly faithful churches uh, abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ. They abandon the Calvinism of the the uh the, the people who founded this country but even beyond that you know the the faithful remnant you know even people who are genuine believers have found themselves led astray and and end up trying to pursue um you know building or rebuilding uh, freedom in the united states with conservatives who are actually philosophically hostile to them now, instead of relying on the scriptures, you know they they turn to these these men who are um, very clearly people who uh, who are hostile to biblical Christianity. And John Robbins, he goes and he talks about this. He talks about some of the the individuals and and some of the really uh, derogatory comments. Uh, that they make about Christianity, and these individuals he talks about, people like say Eric Vogelin, and that may be a name that you're not familiar with, but he's a he's a major conservative uh, political theorist, and so what he says is is something that that has a, has a tremendous amount of effect on on the the intellectual climate, on the conservative intellectual climate. And even on people who, like I say, who've never heard his name. That's one of the funny things about philosophy and about um, about uh, academics and, and scribblers, what have you, uh, as some people call them. You know, they, they can have an effect on people who've never even heard their name, but these ideas just kind of get out there. You know, and, and Eric Vogelin is is an example of of this type of thing. One of the things that, and, and he quotes him, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it, but Don, um, John Robbins quotes him, he talks, this Vogelin fellow, he calls Calvin's Institutes a Gnostic Quran. Uh, I, I mean, that that's, um, I think that that's a pretty derogatory way to refer to a man who uh, did more to systemize uh, biblical Christianity probably than anybody else, uh, at least certainly in, in modern times. I mean, um, yeah, I think he's the, you know, the, the greatest systematic theologian, or at least I think you could certainly argue that he is, uh, of all time. You know, it was John Calvin. Uh, and yet he, he refers to Calvin's Institutes, which is Calvin's main work, uh, of theology as a Gnostic Quran and, and he has nothing but contempt for it. And again, this is a major conservative theorist. Um, one of the, the main points that John Robbins makes about the conservatives is he says that, that, you know, they there is their denial of of total depravity. And this is one of the ways in which The conservative movement, not just individual conservative writers, but the conservative movement, is actually hostile to Christianity. He says, Conservatives are fond of saying that they, unlike liberals, believe that man is depraved, that he is not by nature either good or perfectible. It is not enough to say that man is depraved, however, when one is discussing the relationship of Christianity to conservatism. The question is whether conservatives accept the biblical doctrine of man's depravity, and the answer is that they do not. This can be seen most clearly in two areas, epistemology and ethics. Okay, so I know everybody wants to just run away now. Oh, no, he said epistemology! (laughs) Epistemology, I know that that can, you know, if if you haven't had uh, uh, philosophical training, that that might sound like a pretty intimidating term. Basically, epistemology is simply the, is, is a branch of philosophy that answers the question, how do you know? You know, when, when any of us, you know, when, when we make a claim to knowledge, um, it, someone can always come and say, well, how do you know? You know, I could say the sky is blue. And someone could say, well, Steve, how do you know that? I could say, well, I look out the window and I see the sky is blue. Um, or I could say the grass is green. Someone say, "Well, well, how do you know the grass is green? I could say, well, I'm looking out my window and I can see that the grass is green. Yeah, you know, so in in a case like that, I'm I'm appealing to to sensory experience, and I'm saying that that my my senses, my eyesight, um, is the basis for my knowing the color of the sky and the color of the grass. And epistemology is simply you know answers that question: How do you know? Now, I don't want to get deep into um, to uh, answer you know to to epistemology here today. I don't. That's that's not the the point that I'm I'm driving at here, but When it comes to answering that question, how do you know? Conservatives usually give, they, they give an answer. They say, well, um, okay, we can, we, we can, can come to knowledge by, uh, by some combination of science, revelation, reason, tradition, and sensation. But Christianity teaches that we know what we know not through any combination of science or revelation or reason and tradition, all these other things that, that the conservatives like to cite. As Christians, we say we know things because the Bible teaches them. Either they're expressly set down in the Scriptures, or we can can, can come to a, a logical conclusion based on the statements in the Scriptures, the 66 books of the Bible. So in terms of how we know things, Christians and conservatives give very different answers to that question. And then there's also a matter of ethics. For instance, the the conservatives tend to be natural natural law people. In other words, conservatives say, okay, we how do we, you and ask a conservative, how do you know right from wrong? How do you know what the right thing to do is? And usually their site, um, you know, well, you can go out and observe nature and you can, can derive, you, you can decide what to do or what not to do, or what we ought to do, what we ought not to do, based on an observation of nature, but but that's really and John Robbins makes this point in his essay. He says that's really a type of idolatry because it's a sort of creature worship. You know, but in Scripture we're we're not told to to worship the creature. You know, that is we're not, we're not to to worship things that are created. We're to worship God. And for Christians, where do we get our ethics? You know, how do we know what is right to do and what is wrong to do? How do we know what we ought to be doing or what we ought to avoid doing? Well, we know that by the law of God. I mean, the law of God is summarized in the Ten Commandments. You know, we don't look to nature to try to determine right and wrong. I mean, nature's under a curse, right? I mean, you know, when Adam and Eve fell, I mean, all of, all of creation is under a curse. And there's a lot of things that go on in nature um, that are, are, are pretty terrible. You know, nature's red in tooth and claw, right? Uh, That's what some people would say. And you can learn all kinds of terrible lessons by looking at nature. You know, you you can't determine what you ought to do by observing nature. But yet, conservatives, uh, the people that believe in natural law, and and conservatives tend to be natural law people, will tell you that you can. You know, and, and the Bible's teaching on what is right and wrong, well, that's ignored, or even at times it can be denigrated. Now, I say there's a lot in this essay that I can't cover here today, um, but what I did want to do is is I, I wanted to focus and, and leave you with uh, the uh, maybe a comment here from the end from the end of the essay because of course you know as I said you know we've gotten to a point here where Protestants have become uh, almost it, it seems like non-existent uh, a non-existent force in in the uh, the running of this country they've uh, almost disappeared. And, you know, what is to be done? You know, I mean, do we have any chance of uh, preserving the freedoms that we still have? Do we have any chance of of enhancing or expanding them? Well, if if any of that is to happen, if we're to have any kind of a future at all, we have to get back to believing the things that uh, that the people who founded our country believe. We have to get back to the Calvinism of the people who founded our nation and uh, let me read here's a uh, uh, a brief quote here from from John Robbins he says this quote conservatism has no ideology no systematic thought but the christian system is christianity not the compromised christianity of the judeo-christian tradition nor the superstitious christianity of the medievalists nor the irrational christianity of the irsets evangelicals and romanist reformed but the clear logical, and robust Christianity of the Reformation. The proclamation of that Christianity must begin with the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we call Western civilization, including the freedoms we still enjoy in the United States, is the product of the bold proclamation of the gospel in the 16th and 17th centuries. If the freedom we still possess is to be kept and enlarged, it can be done only if Christians clearly teach, and the Holy Spirit makes many believe the gospel they hear. That is the way freedom emerged the first time, and that is the only way it can be maintained. To quote Whitaker Chambers in one of his more lucid moments, political freedom as the Western world has known it is only a political reading of the Bible, but freedom is first a soteriological reading of the Bible. End quote. So I I think, you know, I mean, we live at a time right now, things look pretty grim. You know, things look pretty grim. You know, you can... You know, we look around at the political situation and we see people who are, uh, you know, as, as Christians, we see people who are, are hostile to everything we believe, and they seem to run everything. And, you know, it, it, can, be, it can be intimidating, and, and you can almost feel like, like maybe everything is, is kind of slipping away. Now, you know, ultimately, you, know, you and I, I mean, this world is not our home. As Christians, we know that. But that doesn't mean that what goes on here doesn't matter. I mean, it does. And I would much rather live, uh, and I think most people would much rather live and see their children live in a, in a country that was governed according to Christian principles than, than a country that was governed according to non-Christian principles. Uh, the fact of the matter is most people in most of history uh, have lived under oppressive governments. You know, We here in the West have had a tremendous, extraordinary privilege of living under governments that, that are substantially uh, influenced and formulated under the ideas of the Word of God. And if we're to preserve or enhance any of that, we're going to have to get back to preaching and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only just that, but also the whole counsel of God. In other words, we need to get back to being Protestants. And, and I'm afraid that, um, that we've gotten far away from that. And and we're seeing the results of it every day all around us. Well, that's about all I had for this week. So I just wanted to say thanks so much for joining me for the the podcast. For those of you who have been watching on the live stream, thanks for for joining me for that as well. I hope to be able to do this uh, at least once a week. I know I, I've been doing it on Friday nights uh, up until now, most weeks. I've been doing it on Saturdays here the last couple weeks. I'm still trying to find out what works best with my schedule. Um, but anyway, thanks so much for joining me. And, and I hope to be able to come up with a uh, maybe a regular day and a regular time at some point. If I do, uh, or when I do, I should say I'll let you know. Anyway, again, thanks so much for, for listening and for watching. I really appreciate that. I look forward to talking to you next time. Until that time. May the spirit of truth guide you in all truth as you read and study God's word. Goodbye.